Hello, and welcome to episode 3 of the Vampire Chronicles cast. Today I'll be talking about The Queen of the Damned, the third book in the Vampire series by Anne Rice. This book will expand her universe of vampires and introduce the psychic detectives collectively called the Talamasca. First, I want to thank those that are listening. Uh, I appreciate it. If you want to give me feedback of any sort, please email me at vampirecast1 at gmail.com. That's vampirecast1, as in the number one, at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, whatever you have to say. Um, right now, I'd like to apologize for the lateness of this episode. I've had a lot of home projects going on in numerous areas. Like, um, I recently repainted my living room with my wife in my dining room. It came out really great, really pretty. Uh, I also did a very large yard display this year for Halloween that I really got into, and it was a lot of fun to do. So, um, a lot of time spent on different things. Hope everyone had a good Halloween. Um, we're going into the holiday season, so busy times for everyone. Uh, I've also gone back to work, so uh, my reading schedule is going to be more compressed, and it may take longer to do the next book before I record. So I hope everyone's being patient with me on this. Um, also, I want to let you know that I'm on Stitcher with this podcast, so if you want to look up me uh, on Stitcher, if you prefer that platform, uh, that's the one I like to use uh, personally when I listen to podcasts. I think it's a really good app for you know, different podcasts. So again, sorry, busy times uh, got me behind on putting this together. It took me a while to write. Um, I did some good research on the history section. So anyway, here we go. Let's get right into it. So the novel, um, The Queen of the Dam, opens with Lestat recounting the events so far into the story. And he sounds really loving uh, as he's reading to the audience when he speaks to them. It seems that he is going to tell a different story here by rewinding the clock 10 days prior to the concert we saw at the end of The Vampire Lestat. Um, there's going to be a lot of different points of view from many characters within this, within this novel. Anne Rice is going to be placing a lot of characters on the chessboard and really ramping up um, her number of characters going forward. She's going to spend a good half of the novel placing characters to battle Akasha, the villain in this story. Now, Lestat is comparing himself to James Bond and David Copperfield, which I guess, uh, since one is a rogue character being the Bond, and the other character is honorable, which is David Copperfield. So he's kind of comparing to himself to, you know, other literary heroes, characters. The novel begins with a proem, which I found out is a preface to a story or speech. Uh, I think it's an interesting one because there's a declaration written on the wall of a vampire club about the history and lineage around Lestat. Apparently other immortals want him dead. This is at a club, <clears throat> excuse me, called Dracula's Daughter in San Francisco. We see a blonde-haired figure reading this and commenting, quote, Lestat, you are the damnedest creature, end quote. Turns out it's Marius, the one vampire that guided Lestat in the last book because no one else would help him. Um, Marius asked the fledglings in the bar why they do not seek out those who must be kept and why they obsess over Lestat. And there's really no real answer, just a blank stare and confusion. And... Maybe only the ones in the know should be concerned about the father and mother, Akasha and Inkle. When Marius returns to his compound, he senses something wrong. The doors are open around the chambers where Akasha and Inkle sit. Marius begins to feel like a saint. Bloody stigmata on his hands is the imagery we read here. Will he be martyred? Akasha is not there next to Inkle where she usually sits. Inkle doesn't look right. He seems hollow to him. The descriptive language paints the clear picture of Inkle, glass, transparent, hollow, hair breaking into fragments, splintering. Marius thinks Lestat is behind this, and he would have the mischievous impulse to do something like this. All his music being played through the music videos, maybe had something to do with it. Who knows? Then he sees her, Akasha, standing there, animated, alive. Quote, Akasha standing only three inches away from him. Her skin was white and hard and opaque, as it always had 
had been. Her cheek shone like pearl as she smiled, her dark eyes moist and enlivened as the flesh puckered ever so slightly around them. They positively glistered with vitality, end quote. Akasha mir uh, mirrors Marius's speech before she attacks, much like Santiago does with Louis in an interview with the vampire. Why do the vampires do this? Maybe it's a test, or they can't com comprehend what they are looking at sometimes. Uh, maybe it's an animalistic thing, uh, blended in with their vampire nature. Akasha drives Marius into the ice underneath his compound. He sends out a telepathic alert to Lestat. Danger. We come to believe that Marius has maybe died in the ice, entombed forever. There's a lot of action in this novel compared to the last three books, for sure. I think with the expanding of the universe, we see Rice's vampire world built quickly from different perspectives, setting this novel apart from the other two books in terms of style. The Legend of the Twins, to me, is the most interesting part of the novel. It is broke up and broken up into three sections dispersed strategically in the structure of the story. Rice likes to back into introductions of character and plot. And I think this technique draws the reader in further to figure out deeper character motivations and mysteries. And she does this with the red-haired twins. The first section of part one begins with an old man having a dream about something he discovered, a painting on a cave wall. This man believes the painting is from 4000 BC in ancient Egypt. The painting is of two twin women with red hair and soldiers bearing down on them. The women are bound together. The man is begging his daughter to call the woman who gave him money to continue his research in South America. He was looking for the lost kingdom of Mu, which I found out is the Pacific Ocean version of Atlantis. Um, never heard of this legend before. And this man has been ridiculed in the archaeological community for trying to seek out this lost civilization. Is this inspiration for Rice's later novel? I think um, Lestat in the realms of Atlantis is later down the road, but she could have gotten the idea here. Um, so this character dies before his benefactor can arrive so he can share the news of what he dreamt. In the jungle's walking is the note found by his daughter in his dead hand. The next section of the book introduces us to Baby Jinx and the Fang Gang, and they are literally short-lived. Baby Jinx is young, 17 years old, that is. She's having the same dream of the red-headed women. And what's up with these vampires and Harley Harleys, you know, these motorcycles? They really love these Harley Davidsons for some reason. Because Lestat, I think, even rides one in uh, Vampire Lestat. When Baby Jinx flashes back on going home to bury her mother, her dad calls her Lizzie Borden. And it's funny because she doesn't know the reference. She doesn't know knows what that is. She's now in St. Louis looking for some dead guys, as she calls them. She comes across a burnt-out mansion and a ma man who has a French accent. This is Laurent. Laurent, if you remember, is one of the fledglings from the coven, the Children of Darkness. Akasha appears and burns Laurent with her gift fire gift. She also burns baby Jinx. Two characters wiped out so quickly. I think this happens so fast and I don't understand fully the point of bringing in this character and then killing her in the same chapter she is introduced. It could be that Rice wants to place a more hollow character into her landscape to tell the reader this world does not allow for lack of depth and mind of sensibilities. Maybe to illustrate the mindlessness of Akasha too. Maybe we get a sense of um, how she thinks about life or human life, even more immortal life. And we see this again in the mass slaughter later in the book that Akasha starts. The goddess Pandora is one character we don't get to know very well in this novel, but for this chapter. Uh, the first sentence to describe her is very striking. Quote, She was a tall creature, clad in black, with only her eyes uncovered. Her strides long as she moved with inhuman speed up the treacherous snow-covered path. End quote. Pandora senses that the mother and father have awoken after 6,000 years, and Pandora is tied to Marius. She is the equivalent to what Gabriel is to Lestat, but not his mother to Marius. She is his straight-out lover. Pandora is in the Himalayas, as we see, and has come across uh, some sort of collective of people, and their leader is Azim. Uh, 
Azim has his own followers, and he regularly uses these followers to appease his bloodlust. He is his own blood god in the eyes of his, of his followers. Pandora senses danger, but cannot get a clear message of what the danger is. This is why she is seeking out Azim. He will not answer her questions until she participates in the bloodletting. This scene is very gory and very violent, putting this book squarely in the horror genre. Pandora also has no idea that Marius is trapped in ice. Funny, she uses fire to clean her hands in one little moment there. Uh, remember, the older the vampire, the harder for elements to destroy them, as in fire, sun. She leaves by, she leaves by flying away. Now we see Daniel Malloy, the interviewer from the interview with the vampire. And he is with Armand. Armand wants to follow Daniel around to make sure he is interesting or he will kill him. Daniel wants to become an immortal, but Armand holds off on giving him his blood. And Daniel is having the same dream about the red-headed twins. Um, and I think Daniel, to me, is not very interesting. He seems to only tolerate Armand at times, but also admiring him uh, and the fact that he's a vampire. Armand tells Daniel that to be alive and mortal is priceless, and he doesn't know what he asked with his desire to be immortal. His desire is described as such, quote, He longed for Louis' violent and sensuous world, evil. He was no longer afraid, end quote. When Armand starts talking Daniel, when he sort of starts stalking him, it gets kind of funny. Armand drags him out of bed at one point and goes, Call Paris, Armand demands. The time spent between Armand and Daniel reminded me of Lestat and Louis without Louis' brooding attitude and constant self-searching and questioning. Daniel wants this. Louis did not. And it's funny how in this little section that Anne Rice makes reference to Redgar Hauer from Blade Runner uh, and compares him to Lestat because at one point um, when they were doing the movie, Anne Rice wanted Redgar Hauer to play Lestat. But as we know, uh, Tom Cruise got the role. Armand is Daniel's demonic god. At one point, Daniel is on a cruise ship and Rice compares it to Jonah in the belly of the whale. Technology has advanced so far in the immortal life of Armand and the biblical references used in Daniel's perspective maybe to illustrate what his obedience to Armand is shaping into something stronger. Now much later in the story, there is a Beowulf reference about the path of the whale cruise ship. Beowulf being one of the first narratives ever written outside of the Holy Bible. It's pretty old. It, and this story is in poem form, but it is one of the oldest stories written. Because um, at the time, you know, a lot of people were writing poems, and this was the format they used to tell stories. And just thinking about it, it kind of makes sense, because maybe because, you know, back then there weren't as many written text because of lack of a way to copy them so people had to maybe memorize the poem to keep it in their minds for like an oral history or oral memorization to continue the story i think rice is using this in a subtle way to foreshadow that the story is going to go very close to the source the first story of the vampires so we're getting to the source of where this all began this universe of vampires the twins being the center of the story, we will see, uh, will lead to other characters. The last thing we see Daniel do is drink from a runaway at Armand's insistence. Here is Cayman, servant of Akasha and Inkle. To me, this character is the most tragic. The things he does and witnesses is truly horrific and will drive anyone to madness. We are introduced to him by his likes of things and places. Six paragraphs begin with, he liked... Cayman has embraced joy over darkness despite the things he has seen and done. We come to learn Cayman raped the red-headed twins before Akasha and her court. Very terrible act he was forced to do. He hates Akasha for this and vows to destroy her. He hears the voices too, the warnings from blood drinkers. The mother walks. Cayman has a soul that struggles. He at once sees the horrors in the new world, but desires to be the, quote, simpleton again, end quote. His need, for, his need for blood is this, quote, Rather, he realized suddenly that the blood merely refreshed him, increased his telepathic powers, his ability to fly, or to travel out of his body, or his prodigious strength, end quote. Cayman was part of the first brood. 
an army of mortals turn into vampires to rebel against the queen. The story of Jesse, the great family in the Talamasca, is one of the largest chapters in the book. Jesse is a red-haired woman of 35, and she is, in my opinion, one of the more interesting characters in this story. We also learn the names of the twins, Mekaray and Maharet. When Jesse appears, Rice lets his character unfold gradually, only to reveal that she is psychic. I think this is the true talent of Anne Rice here to gracefully let a character reveal her or his self to the reader. For me as the reader, I'm intrigued by this attractive woman and the mystery of her past and how her past will conflict with her possible present. I can see numer numerous ways Anne Rice can set up this character and her life in the Talamasca. Will there be betrayal? A great discovery with her immortal ties? Will she feel conflicted in her pursuit of finding more immortals? Maharet and Mael are the couple that tend to her in California. Mael being an old disciple of Tescamen, a druid god almost as old as Akasha and Inkle. He is also tied to Marius, as we see in the Vampire Lestat. Marius was kidnapped by Mael to bring before this god, but eventually flees to Egypt. If the author is gradually introducing us to different houses of immortals, she's backing into it in a way with one character at a time, revealing relationships in subtle ways that draw the reader in deeper. A lot is unpacked in this chapter. The biggest reveal is the Talamasca, the psychic detectives that are investigating witches and vampires. Jesse has been recruited by Aaron Leitner, and as we go deeper in the Talamasca, we learn of a secret order in 758 B.C., I'm not sure what was happening then in real history. I tried to look it up, but there was no real documented events that was really going on. The only thing I found was during the Tang Dynasty in China, there were attacks by Muslim and Persian raiders. Um, it was an age of mass starvation and disease. And apparently, Amsterdam was a haven for witches escaping persecution. Now, I'm not sure if this was really true or if this was true in the universe within this book. Seems like this organization is the antithesis of covens or families, as they were referred in the story. I can see stories within stories within this chapter alone. I think sometimes authors inspire themselves with their own writings. One story leads to another, then another, then another. I've known many artists who will look deeper into their works and find new stories or new pieces of, of art to express. We also meet the head of the Talamasca, David Talbot who shows Jesse a painting in a large room called The Temptation of Amadio. And that Amadio is Armand. David wants to lead Jesse to Marius, since the actual book's interview of the vampire and the vampire Lestat exist in this world, there is part of the research. Jesse uses these books to learn about the vampires. The fact that Jesse has been raised by vampires makes her position in this world very precarious. She even goes to Lestat and Louis' apartment in New Orleans and discovers artifacts from when they lived there. She even reflects on Claudia. Her mission is to go to the concert that Lestat is putting on in San Francisco, Halloween night, showtime for Lestat and his band. Many characters will, characters will be at the show, Armand and Daniel making their way to the show, and we ping-pong back and forth between three characters during the show, Daniel, Cayman, and Jesse. Shifting points of view, as Lestat stated in the very beginning of this novel. First is Daniel with Armand. They see Jesse and Armand whispers, quote, Talamasca, end quote. In Latin, this means animal mask or old world word for witch or shaman. Daniel thinks this to himself. I won't go into every single action each character takes in this section, but I will break down their motivations for being at the concert and their desires. Daniel is there for visceral curiosity and to be a witness to it all. Daniel hears all the thoughts around him in the crowd waiting for the concert to begin. Their plan for Lestat's death to, to dis dismember him and burn his body by the sea. He snickers to himself that they would think Lestat would allow this to happen. Armand and Daniel are there to protect him. Came in on a mission to intercept the queen when she shows up and questioning her choices. Marius left alive his message to assist him reaching Pandora and Santino. Yet the queen did nothing to destroy them. Cayman, as we will see, has much to avenge when he meets the queen. Cayman also realizes Jessica, Jesse, Maharet's child, is here at the concert hall. And so is Armand. 
the one he read about in the books. When Cayman finds Mayo in the crowd, he is in agreement with him that the queen always has a purpose to her choices. They know she will strike, but what is her end game? Cayman is in the state of wonder of where the queen is and what she is planning. Also, Jessica's presence in the crowd concerns and confuses him. Jessie, as she is referred to mainly, only wants to touch Lestat to prove to herself that he is really an immortal. She is briefly knocked out in the crowd and her neck is broken. David and other members of the Talamasca carry her out to recover. Her last thoughts are not caring about the good and evil of Lestat, but knowing he is immortal. The most horrifying image relates to Jessie when she thinks about Baal, the old god. Quote, in olden times, there was a terrible worship in the city of Carthage. To the great bronze god Baal, the populace offered and sacrificed their little children. The small bodies were laid on the statue's outstretched arms, and that by means of a spring, the arms would rise and the children would fall into the roaring furnace of the god's belly. End quote. This sacrifice is what Jessie feels as she sees immortals set ablaze and their skin burned in her mind's eye. A pre-Christian god reference here to signal again pre-Christian history that the story of the twins will take place in. When the rogue vampire assassins descend on Lestat, the queen moves in to counterattack them. All of these sections between characters move in a linear fashion and his perspective opens the character up to the reader. With Cayman, more about the twins and the queen. Jessie with the Talamasca and her knowledge of history. Daniel's mainly just taking in the action. Passive. When the queen begins burning everyone, the chaos sends fledglings running. Enemies of the queen are destroyed completely. Cayman hopes the twins destroy her. Lestat escapes and Cayman and Armand follow him as they see first responders helping survivors. Cayman goes to Carmel Valley to follow Lestat. He sees the queen explode from the earth with Lestat in her arms and fly towards the west. Daniel, Jesse, Pandora, Santino, Armand, and Marius all see this in their mind's eye. Quote, she's taken him, end quote. Like a big exclamation point. Boom. Armand whispers, she's taken him. The queen has taken her prince, Lestat, in the arms of the goddess. Now we will see the story from Lestat's point of view in this section. Akasha takes him to his father's castle in France where he is born, back to familiar territory. Lestat is somehow given more somehow given more gifts by the queen. He can see visions of Laret being burned ablaze, baby Jinx being killed. Lestat can now fly and she tests him with this power. Lestat asks why he was spared while others were killed. Akasha explains that he'll be like an instrument she will use and she wants to love him, take her time with him. Akasha is fascinated by Lestat, but she has an agenda and it will be revealed, quote, the very image of my own resurrection, end quote. Akasha convinces Lestat he needs her to feel fulfilled. And I think she is placing him into some sort of trance because he seems so enamored with her instantly. Quote, she came a step closer. She put her arm around me, and it felt soft then for the moment. Not like the hard thing it truly was. We were just two beings standing near to each other, and she looked indescribably lovely to me, so pure and otherworldly. I felt the awful desire for the blood again, to bend down, to kiss her throat, to have her as I had had a thousand mortal women. Yet she, the goddess, she with the immeasurable power, I felt the desire rising, cresting, end quote. Akasha takes him, and he is afraid of what is next. Marius bringing everyone together in this moment. Marius, Mael, and Pandora all are trying to figure out why the queen spared them and for what purpose. Jesse's presence at the meeting has Mael questioning who she was, Talamasca. Such a motley crew, Mael thinks. Can they be powerful enough to fight the queen when they confront her? The problem is, if they kill the queen, they could kill themselves, since the queen's life force is connected to theirs. Everyone's perspective is accounting, accounted for in this meeting. Maharet doesn't know where her sister is, Makare. The sister's story, the first of part of three. Here's where the book gets really rich in depth, and Rice does not go right into that. We have to check in with Lestat. Remember, keep the reading, reader moving forward with anticipation, the hook. Lestat is learning to fly with Akasha. 
They go to Azim's hideaway in the mountains. Akasha confronts Azim and then explodes his head. We now see the murderous intentions of her plan as she slaughters all the males in the hideaway. Lestat jumps into the slaughter and helps her lay waste to the men. Lestat's killing is not justified, he thinks to himself. This killing is not functional for feeding. This is mass murder with intent. Akasha's intent. Akasha has put some mind spell on Lestat. He seems, he seems to be out of control from himself. The queen of heaven, the goddess, the good mother. Lestat never had a vision of conquest. Just to exist in this world and live among mortals. Akasha says she will say anything she, she, she has to to be what she is. Lestat's respond responds with this, O oh Lord God. Funny, this seems to be how he expresses his ultimate shock every time in every story. After the bloodbath in the mountains, Akasha takes him to some third world, war-torn country side to show him how mortals make war. She wants him to see the misery and desperation that men make. If you think of the influence Lestat had on Louis and Claudia, this influence with Akasha and Lestat has a grander and darker design. Akasha wants to be a god. Lestat just wants to be in the world not control it or have immortals worship him, maybe only on stage in a play or rock concert. In some ways, Akasha does appeal to these urges in him, but he rejects the dark, diabolical motivation behind it. The price to rid the world of war and famine is too high and monstrous. Killing all the males in the world, that's how this will be accomplished. Now, the story of the twins. They are witches that can communicate with the spirits inherited from their mother. War of the Mothers, maybe this could be the alternate title of this book, since all we're seeing is mothers war and battle each other. This is a matriarchal line, lineage of power, and this is something not very common in literature. I think this is kind of unique and rare. Rice flexing her power, powerful feminine side in her characters. Maharet explains that spirits really don't have a sense of right and wrong. They do malicious things to humans or possess, which can be evil. It seems the bad spirits in this universe envy humans because we can be flesh and spirit at the same time. Having fleshly pleasures is something the bad spirits cannot experience, so they are jealous of us. This section is 46 pages long, and it really covers a lot of ground on the background of the twins, Makare and Maharet. Apparently, spirits go to witches because they want the intention and love. Here, the philosophical core of the supernatural subject matter of the Chronicles is being unpacked. Also, the physical qualities of red hair and green eyes attract witchy characteristics in the family lineage of the twins. The time before the moon is when the witches began in existence. The twins' powerful, their powers, um, as to say, were doubled compared to their mother. Maybe this is why Akasha believes she must have a partner in Lestat to double her power. The making of the blood drinker blinker. Blood Drinkers is where Maharet is going with her story, the base of which lies in the realm of witches. I think when we see the crossover with the Mayfair witches, we might see more insight into, into this relationship between witch and vampire, vampire in this universe. They eat the flesh of their dead. As stated, quote, The sacred duty of every child was to consume the remains of his parents. The sacred duty of the tribe was to consume the remains of the dead. End quote. The time of wars descended upon the tribes, the time of Jericho. Warlike tribes would eat the flesh of their enemy. The witch tribes looked down on this. It made no sense to them to eat the flesh of their enemies. They had no enemies. As the pharaoh took a bride, Akasha, the queen made it her mission to get rid of the flesh eaters she heard about in the land. A lot of blanks are being filled in with those who must be kept. As a flashback, the narrator, the witch, is telling a story to an audience the newly formed coven. This is a device that Rice keeps using in her novels to unfold events not only to the reader, but to other characters at the same time in the past time to reveal history of a people. Akasha and Inkle decree that all that die will be wrapped and preserved in a tomb, also presented for all to see. Could this be actually in real history, the start of wakes and viewing of the body when someone passes? We're, we're going to see later on in the history section an aspect of the ancient Egypt's after mummification. Inko builds an army to fight the diehard cannibals. 
Soon the witch's tribe is under threat by the Egyptians. The king and queen learn the powers of the tribe and they reach out to them. The king and queen of Kemet, as they were referred to, being Akash and Inkle. The witches ask the spirits how to respond to the message. They are warned not to go to them. Danger awaits if they do. A male, a bad spirit, shows up to the twins. Quote, enormous, powerful, and full of rancor, end quote, as Maharet describes. They try to resist the spirit, but he infects the witch's mother by a way of small cuts from gnats. The mother dies and they eat her flesh as their custom. Maharet explains that the heart was not as important as the brain, the seat of consciousness because it was connected to the eyes. Seeing is important. Quote, and seeing is what we did as witches. We saw into hearts. We saw into the future. We saw into the past. Seer, that was the word for what we were in our language. That is what witch meant. End quote. Egyptian soldiers attacked the tribe during the sacred feast of the twins' mother. Screaming, the soldiers killed the relatives as they were bound together. The Maharets and Makare's village was burned before their eyes as they were carried away. The spirits followed the twins as the soldiers took them, bedeviled and harassing them all the way. The soldiers were not afraid. Quote, the king said the gods of Egypt were more powerful than the demons of the witches. End quote. Forced to face the king, the twins would not speak to him. Cayman, the king's steward, consoled the twins in their time of captivity. He secretly eased their pain. The Egyptian people feared the red-haired twins. Twins, in turn, had never seen a people so rich in decor and dress. The evil of their flesh-eating ways was to be punished. But first, the twins must tell the royal king and queen how they talked to spirits. What was their magic, their secret ways? How could they communicate with invisible beings? The queen to Maharet and Makare seemed to be worse than the king and her outlook on flesh eaters. The queen is from Uruk, a city in Iraq, which existed around 3100 BC. This city was a major urban civilization in Sumer and later Babylonia. The queen in Makare's eyes has no morality. Makare finally responds to the queen to tell her that there are no gods in Egypt. The spirits are there, but they put names like Osiris and Ra on them. The king and queen are not angered at this answer. answer. They seemed intrigued more than anything. After the twins are sent back to their cell, a male seems to be swirling around them, attracted by Makare's thoughts of anger. When Cayman shows up in the cell, he learns that the destruction of the twins' village was nothing more than a holy war waged for no gain but to capture them. Cayman is distressed at this revelation. The next day, the twins are taken to the queen, and the queen exclaims to them that the spirits are the gods. No, says Mekare, they are not, and they do not care that we were flesh eaters. Akasha accuses the twins of being evil and orders their execution the next day. The king interferes, thinking that if they speak to spirits, what could they order them to do out of anger? They should be let go, the king says. Makare calls on the spirits, and they move articles and fling them at Akasha. Inkle shields her, and Cayman looks on in astonishment. Amal appears and materializes a necklace that Akasha lost in Uruk. This makes Akasha sit up and notice. Amal continues to speak to Akasha about the dead and where the souls go. The spirits give her answers she doesn't like because they do not fit into faith in her gods. Amal finally enters into Akasha. Shocked from those around the queen, the twins are taken away and Amal continues to blow wind and harass them. Amal tells the twins that he likes to slurp blood and the blood sacrifices please him because he drinks the blood and it makes him feel full. The other spirits look down on this. Quote, we are abominations, we humans, because we have both body and soul. End quote. For three days they stayed in their cell. When the king summoned them again, he sets out to prove to the court that the twins are powerless and they're just women. He orders Cayman to rape them in front of the court. This angers Amel because he doesn't understand why they don't ask him to exact revenge on the Egyptians. Mekare and Maharet are finally released and they end up with Bedouin people in the north. Maharet has a daughter, Miriam, and once again the Egyptian shoulders. soldiers show up in the village seeking out the twins. Cayman is there and says something is wrong with the king and queen. Their flesh has been changed. Reluctantly, the twins go with the soldiers but leave behind the baby girl. As Maharet comes out 
of telling this story, the coven wonders how close Akasha is to them. Nowhere near, Maharet determines, but she is coming. Lestat wakes up in a house on a Greek island. He senses that many people are dead on the island. Lestat finds himself surrounded by mortal women of various ages. Looking at himself, he discovers that his skin is much paler than before. Akasha's blood has changed him. He also has the fire gift. He could set something fire on fire instantly. When Akasha comes to, to him, she tells him that 700 men were on the island, but she killed all but seven. She left them for Lestat. Akasha begins to explain her philosophy behind her plan to kill all the males on the planet, to rid, of, to rid it of war, rape, and violence. They go into a long conversation about the function of men and why women can't exist without them. Lestat does bring up a point that all the deaths that would be in the millions, there will be a price that Akasha would have to pay some way or another. The next day, Lestat witnesses the women kill the remaining men right in front of him. This becomes a ritualistic killing that Lestat participates in for the women watching. Cries of joy as Lestat opens the door of the mansion. The chapter closes with Lestat being very afraid of the future. I think this is the first time Lestat understands and is close to true, monstrous evil. The next section of the twins' story continues. Maharet hears a story out of Sri Lanka of males being killed by females. Also in Lincolnos, mass hysteria or infection, the queen's work. Cayman demands that Maharet continue the tale her and her, of her and her sister. The queen approaches, so they must be ready. Cayman was, was kind as always as he led the twins back to Egypt. He would not look them in the eye, though. A dark presence followed him, harassing him in his home, rearranging things in his home. Then the worst thing happened to him. Quote, Then in the dead of night, as he lay wondering what the thing was up to, for it had been so quiet, he heard suddenly a great pounding at his door. He was in terror. He knew he shouldn't answer that the knocking didn't come from a human hand. But finally, he could bear it no longer. He said his prayers. He threw open the door. And what beheld was the horror of horror. The rotted mummy of his father. The filthy wrappings and tatters propped against the garden wall. End quote. What a hor horrific image. Once again, we are reminded that these are horror novels. Now this could have been, well be an inspiration for Anne Rice's Servant of the Bones, which I picked up recently at a thrift store. So that's on my shelf. Cayman tries to call upon the gods of Egypt to rid him of this apparition. The spirit of Amal is, has been creating chaos in the king and queen's kingdom. Civil war is about to break out. The king goes to Cayman to try to help him remember what the twins told him about the spirit. Amal will not go away. The flesh-eating people finally had enough and blamed the king and queen for their chaos the spirit is creating. They stab the king and queen, hoping to blame the spirit for this violence. Cayman witnesses a red cloud envelop the queen, and at one point the cloud goes into her body. He thinks this sight is almost animalistic. He sees the king healed by the queen's blood as she takes Cayman's dagger and slits her own wrist. Cayman falls asleep from the shock of what he has seen. When he awakes, he realizes the king and queen have changed. They tell him that he will see tomorrow night what they have changed too. He sees them move with terrible speed the next day. The people begin to worship the king and queen as Osiris and Isis because of their powers. What a great way to fold your characters into actual myths that we know. This is like a hidden history cloaked in mythology. And I wonder why Anne Rice hasn't done more series behind the oral myths like the Greeks or Westerns in American culture. Cayman feels that the sun god Ra has turned against his king and queen. Why? Maharet feels doomed as she steps off the barge into the kingdom of Kemet. The mother is closer now to the present-day group. Maharet hears Lestat, but not clear enough. Lestat is now in Haiti, the Garden of God, as Lestat knows it from European explorers. Akasha tells Lestat that she needs him and she could destroy him if she wanted to. He convinces her that he must go to his coven of Marius, Gabriel, Louis, and Armand. The last part of the twins' story is the discovery of the king and queen transformed into something not human. Their skin is not skin. It is luminescent. Akasha thinks the twin witches have cursed the king and queen. 
Macaray tells the queen that the spirit of Amal has wedded to her soul. The king asks Macaray how they can get rid of this thing that makes them blood to make, that makes them thirst for blood. Quote, destroy your body, end quote, she says. Quote, destroy her body, referring to the queen. Macaray confesses to Maharet that she sent Amal to take vengeance on the king and queen. The spirit read her heart. Quote, there was no end to her recriminations. It was she who had spoken to Amal. She who had strengthened him and puffed him up and kept his interest. And then she had wished his wrath upon the Egyptians and he had known. End quote. The dark desire of one character bursts the evil at the core of the immortal's genesis. Her thoughts manifest itself into the spirit of Amal to create this evil being that is Akasha. The queen decides that Makare's tongue is to be ripped out and Maharet's eyes plucked out as punishment for letting loose the demon that polluted the king and queen. The spirits are angered at this and immediately a wind whips through the court. The witches are taken to their cell. Cayman comes to their cell and removes their bonds. He turns them into vampires by feeding them the magic. Maharet can see again. Vampire vision that the dark, dark gift donates to the transformed mortal. The twins try to escape with Cayman, but the queen catches up to them. They are placed in stone coffins and put out to sea, one in one direction and one in the other. Maharet washes ashore in lower East Africa. She begins looking for her sister, going as far north as the North Pole. She learns that the king and queen have folded themselves into the myth of Osiris and Isis. The legend of the twins is born in these times as years pass on. Makare is prophesied to one day destroy the queen, and all the blood drinkers will die with her. Cayman leads a rebellion, the children, the first brood, and there is a war with blood drinkers of the world. I can see more stories could come from these glossed over years, these wars that we are referenced here. Now a great secret religion has been started by the king and queen until the time of Christ. Maharet returns to Egypt 3,000 years later to see the mother and father as statues, statues placed in a tomb. She even pierces one of them to see the blood come out thick. Maharet questions what would happen if the queen arose and walked the earth. Makare's power is just as great as hers. There would be only one survivor in a confrontation. So Maharet finds the village where she left her daughter, Miriam, and establishes a relationship with a young woman who grew up on the legend of the twins. Here she roots her family and herself up until the present day. The conversation comes back to the now. Maharet declared the great family is all of humanity and themselves and that Makare will appear to defeat the queen as prophesied. Lestat shows up and there are hugs and smiles and the queen is not far behind. The novel is, is now from the point of view of Lestat and will continue to be from his point of view until the conclusion. Lestat sees Gabriel and hugs her. Louis, his long-ago companion, is there. Armand, Marius, Jesse. The twins are there for him to take in. What happens when Akasha shows up is nothing more than a philosophical debate between all the characters about her plan to annihilate all the males in the world. This, to me, was anticlimactic. All the build-up from the twins' story and her kidnapping, Lestat and her voracious ability to wreak destruction... I expected a violent attack right away. It is not directly stated by the queen, but I suspect she wanted this new coven to be her army and her diabolical plan. Lestat declares that he cannot follow her in this plan. Betrayal, she declares. Then Macaray appears. Cayman screams out in his loud voice, quote, Queen of the damned, hour of worst menace, I shall rise to stop you, end quote. Macaray moves at blinding speed and decapitates Akasha. This happens so fast. No battle. No big finale. Just head chop. Done. The twins kneel down and feast on the queen's body. The prophecy is coming true right before Lestat's eyes. This was the painting we saw early on in the novel. Macaray eats her heart and brain. Now her body is in hers. No threat of death to the other immortals. Macaray is now the queen of the damned. So now the epilogue follows the characters in the days after the confrontation at the Sonoma compound. Lestat begins writing another book. Title, of course, The Queen of the Damned. Miami is where Lestat and the New Coven end up after Sonoma. Nobody knows where the twins left off to. 
Lestat and Louis traveled back to New Orleans, eventually to the old place where they lived. Memories of Claudia, of those times of closeness, companionship. Lestat convinces Louis to fly with him. They go to London. Talamasca Mother House. Lestat wants Claudia's diary and Marius's painting. He wants to talk to David Talbot. Lestat is being mischievous, mischievous once again, and they have a conversation about the dark gift. And Lestat notices his research materials scattered on the desk and bookshelf. He leaves a Paris number for David to reach him uh, if he ever needs to contact him. The novel ends with Lestat saying, quote, Tell me how bad I am. It makes me feel so good. End quote. I think ending the novel with Lestat being Lestat was a perfect choice. Um, Lestat witnesses many heavy events with Akasha and really encounters true evil that I think shakes him up in a lot of ways. So for him to come back to his normal self is appropriate to end, end things for the reader and for the character. Okay, so now here are some symbols in the story. Marius, when he enters back into his compound and notices those who must be kept is missing, he imagines his hands with bloody stigmata before entering the shrine, religious symbol in a moment of suspense. When baby Jinx sees Akasha for the first time, she looks like the Blessed Virgin. The statue-like nature of her appearance is very striking to her. Of course, baby Jinx is killed right after this, a religious vision just before death. Azim's cave scene has all the imagery of a religious ceremony, then mass death. Daniel sees Armand as his demonic god. Daniel again references Jonah when he is on the cruise ship. Jonah being in the belly of the whale, Daniel in the belly of the ship. His writer's mind seeing the symbolism. Daniel calls Lestat Christ on the cathedral cross when he is at the rock concert and seeing him on stage. After the first attack by Akasha, Armand says, quote, she passed us over, end quote. That's an allusion to Exodus in the blood of the lamb on the door of believers to protect them from death. When Akasha takes Lestat, Jesse has a vision of them, quote, like saints ascending on the painting ceiling of a church, end quote. Lestat with Akasha in the first moments, quote, she shifted against me like a statue of the virgin ready to crush me, end quote. One chapter of the book is titled, Lestat, this is my body, this is my blood. Also, these are lyrics in a Baptist hymn titled, This is my body, this is my blood. And I used to sing this as a little boy myself. Anne Rice likes using religious symbiology right before tense moments or episodes where death is happening. Quotes. Here's some quotes. When Akasha first escapes and Maria sees her, quote, Akasha, standing only three inches away from him, her skin was white and hard and opaque as it had always been. Her cheek shone like so, like pearl as she smiled. Her dark eyes moist and enlivened as the flesh puckered, puckered ever so slightly around them. It positively glistered with vitality. I know I quoted that one earlier, but I will quote it again. Came in reflecting on how blood affected him now in his age. Quote, Rather, he realized suddenly that the, power, that the blood merely refreshed him, increased his telepathic powers, his ability to fly or to travel out of his body, or his prodigious strength. End quote. When Jesse sees Maharet after years of receiving letters from her, quote, like ice and fire, Maharet had seemed that night. Immensely, with a tiny waist and flowing skirts, she had the high-toned mystery of fashion mannequins, the eerie glamour of women who have made of themselves sculpture. Her long brown wool cape, moving with sweeping grace as they left the flat together. Yet how easy with one another they had been, end quote. Jesse experiencing the community that is the Talamasca, quote, people here were what they said they were, end quote. After Jesse has grown up within the Talamasca, quote, by the time Jesse became a full member, she was an expert on the rules of the Talamasca, the procedures, the way to record investigations, when and how to help the police in crime cases, how to avoid all contact with the press. She also came to respect that the Talamasca was not a dogmatic organization. It did not require its members to believe anything, merely to be honest and careful about all the phenomena they, that, that they observed, end quote. When Jesse jumps on stage during the concert and clutches to Lestat, quote, the throbbing music went dim as if she had been plunged into the sea, end quote. When Lestat is looking at Akasha after she kidnaps him, quote, I look down at her throat at the 
pale blue of the artery beneath the flesh, suddenly visible as if she meant for me to see it. The lust I felt was unsupportable. The goddess mine. I took her roughly with a strength that would have hurt a mortal woman. The icy skin seemed absolutely impenetrable, and then my teeth broke through it, and the hot fount was roaring into me again. End quote. Gabriel, discussing with the new coven about destroying Akasha and the potential danger to themselves he could create, quote, Well, is the old myth true? If I waste this bitch, to use the vernacular, do I waste the rest of us too? End quote. <laughs> that one's pretty good. When Lestat is trying to convince Akasha not to carry out her mass murder plan in the final confrontation, confrontation quote, It is the human which has become myth to us. End quote. When Lestat is thinking on whether any of Akasha still exists in Makare, quote, and so we remain immortal, we remain frightened, and we remain anchored to what we can, can control. It all starts again. The wheel turns. We are the vampires, because there are no others. The new coven is formed, end quote. Now let's move on to the history section. To ancient Egypt we go. Imagine if you are a powerful leader, a pharaoh in the earliest days of Egyptian civilization, and you are on your deathbed. One item you would want to have with you is your Book of the Dead, your roadmap, your Google Maps, if you will, to journey through the afterlife. The Book of the Dead was a collection of over 200 spells gathered over centuries from the earliest recorded days of Egyptian civilization. There was no standard text. Some were called coffin text. The Egyptians had three aspects to death, preservation, afterlife, and judgment. The body was to be preserved as best as possible, especially the heart. If the heart couldn't be preserved, then there were substitutes in its place. The heart was left in the body since it was believed that the heart is the center of one's intelligence. Special priests had knowledge of human anatomy as well as knowing the specific prayers and rituals to be performed at various stages of mummification. The embalming and processing of a mummy took about 70 days. The point of mummification was to remove the body of moisture to prevent decay. You needed your body to navigate the netherland. The brain was removed usually through the nose using a special tool with hooks. I have to think that possibly this is where the first origins of surgery had its roots and mummification. Other organs had to be removed carefully to preserve the natural state of the body. The liver, the intestines, the brain were all carefully removed and sometimes placed in special jars called canopic jars made of wood, pottery, or carved from limestone. Each organ had its own special jar protected by the four sons of Horus. Hape for the lungs, Mseti for the liver, Duamotuhet Dwa Mutef for the stomach. And this is a big one. Kebesinuef for the intestines. The Duat is the land of the dead in ancient Egypt, Egyptian mythology. Osiris ruled this underworld. Osiris personified rebirth and life after death. But Osiris was also the god of the dead. The sun god Ra battled Apophis who embodied primordial chaos. Ra battled this god in the netherworld every night to bring the sun back, which revitalized all life with a new day. This land was also for the judgment of souls. Ra traveled through the kingdom of Osiris using his special knowledge, which was recorded in the coffin text, which served as a guide to the hereafter, not just for the king, but for all others as well. These coffin texts were written on the actual coffins the dead bodies were placed in. These texts had spells that protected the deceased as they navigated the subterranean realm. Supposedly in this realm, there are threatening beings, traps, and snares. There is also descriptions of the landscapes of the land of the dead as well as its inhabitants. I guess if you were caught by one of these beings or snares, you would die a second death. According to the coffin text, all souls were judged by Osiris during a ritual that involved a balance or scale. You were judged by the actions you did in your life. 
One of the spells in the Book of the Dead is this, the owner identifying the god Horus, son of Osiris, and affirming that Osiris will triumph over his enemy Seth and ask for the gods to open a path for him. Here's the spell. Quote, O you soul, greatly majestic, behold, I have come that I may see you. I open the netherworld that I may see my father Osiris and drive away darkness, for I am beloved of him. I have come that I may see my father Osiris and that I may cut out the heart of Seth, who has harmed my father Osiris. I have opened up every path which is in the sky and on earth, for I am the well-beloved son of my father Osiris. I am noble, I am a spirit, I am equipped. O all you gods, all you spirits, prepare a path for me. End quote. This is spell nine. The book of the dead was divided into parts. The deceased enters the tombs and descends into the underworld. Explanation of mythic origin of the gods takes place. The deceased travels across the sky in the sun arc as one of the blessed dead. Having been vindicated, the deceased assumes power in the universe as one of the gods. There was always differing distinctions of the afterlife in ancient Egypt because of various traditions within the culture. Once in the afterlife, the deceased was taken to the presence of Osiris, who was confined to Duat, a subterranean world. The deceased was also taken to a paradise version of ancient Egypt called the Field of Reeds. In this alternate world, crops were plentiful and the world was more than perfect, but there was manual labor involved. The deceased also acquired divine powers like the gods in the afterlife because some of the inscriptions historians found had writings like, quote, the Osiris blank and the person's name was in this blank. The creatures that inhabited the underworld seemed very terrifying. They usually were armed with large knives and had the bodies of humans in the heads of different beasts. Some of the names for these horrifying beasts were, quote, he who lives on snakes, quote, or, quote, he who dances in blood, close quote. These creatures could be neutralized by reciting the appropriate spell from the Book of the Dead. There were also another breed of creatures called slaughterers that punished the unrighteous on behalf of Osiris. The Book of the Dead has spells to protect from these hostile beings as well. After negotiating the underworld and all the supernatural creatures, the deceased was judged by the wing of the heart, hence the heart being preserved in mummification to travel with the dead, as depicted in spell 125 in the book. Judgment was carried out by Anubis in the presence of Osiris. The dead was to recite the negative confession and swear that he or she has not committed any of the list of 42 sins. Judgment in the afterlife was the process of judging the worthiness of one's soul in front of the Egyptian gods. This was the important part of the journey through the afterlife. The heart, which kept a record of one's actions, was weighed against the feather of the goddess Mat. This is why the heart is left in mummies and the other organs are removed. Maat is the goddess of truth, justice, wisdom, the stars, law, morality, order, harmony, the seasons, and cosmic balance. The feather represents truth. A heart that can, that's considered unworthy was devoured by the goddess Amit. Anubis, the god of death and mummification, embalming, the afterlife, cemeteries, tombs, and the underworld will be present at the weighing of the heart. Seems like Egyptian gods were many hats in their functionality. His head was a wolf's head, Anubis, would oversee the weighing of the heart as depicted in the Book of the Dead. The deceased was to recite the negative confession before the heart was weighed before Mott. Some, of the, some say the negative confession was a precursor to the Ten Commandments. However the, con, however, the confession is a divine enforcement of everyday morality, and the Ten Commandments were laid down by a divine revelation. The Book of the Dead was first discovered in the Middle Ages. Carl Richard Lepicius a Prussian-German man was the first person to completely translate the Book of the Dead in 1842. Carl's work was mainly to decipher the Egyptian language. His life's work centered around expeditions into Egypt and visiting Egyptian collections all over Europe. He also later created the first Egyptian typeface, the Thin Heart font. Carl's work is fundamental in the field of Egyptology. If you wish to be mummified, 
here in the 21st century, there is a company in Salt Lake City, Utah, that will do that for, right for you. They'll wrap your and preserve your body and entomb it in a sarcophagus of your choosing for a mere $67,000. I don't know if this company still exists because I tried to go to their website and it just wouldn't load. Also, the mausoleum is designed like a pyramid. Pyramid. You can even mummify your pets if you wish. I wonder if Mr. Pisius would approve of this modern-day mummifying. So this is the end of the show. Uh, please email me, if you wish, uh, at vampirecast1 at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to talk about Anne Rice's books, vampires, Egyptian mythology, history, um, history of New Orleans, if you want to talk about... Um, French uh, witches or anything like that, just uh, give me an email. We'll, we'll discuss. I'm also on Instagram at Vampire Chronicles Cast. That's all one word, Vampire Chronicles Cast. So thanks for listening. Um, hopefully the next book, the, uh, Tale of the Body Thief, I'm reading it now. Like I said, I'm going back. I'm back to work. Um, we've been very busy. And the holidays are coming up, so I'm going to try to read as much as I can. I don't know when I'll be able to upload my next episode. It could be a while, so just have patience. So uh, until next time, people of the Bay page, have a good one.